Hello listeners and welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day, immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program that has a singular vision, to promote the health and well-being of veterans and their families. We are currently running programs both domestically on the Gold Coast at St. George's Defence Holiday Suites, as well as internationally in Timor-Leste. We use the Timor Awakening programs as an opportunity to sit down with our participants, either one-on-one or in a group setting, and conduct podcast interviews to capture their stories and their lessons learned, providing insights we can all learn from as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journeys and help others do the same. We'll be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, peer mentoring, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. So whether you're out and about, listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll get a lot out of listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. All right, David, after some technical issues, I think we are back. I will uh, make sure that that keeps recording, but... (laughs) I won't find out until I get home uh, how much of that we missed at the start. So just to sort of recap, sitting down with the, the wonderful Dave Freeman from uh, Freeman's Farm. Uh, he has been an integral part of the VCA programs and the Team of Awakenings on the Gold Coast, having the Freeman's Farm, which uh, has the, the veterans program where veterans come up, get their hands dirty, get involved with some organic farming and learn something along the way. And uh, as I said before, he, David is actually here as a participant and actually filling up his own well and giving himself a break, which is not something he normally does. So it's fantastic to, to have you here. And we just sort of started talking about um, your your old man's passing. Very sad. We did have the pleasure of meeting him a couple of programs ago and um, he told us a bit about his story. He was a fighter pilot in, in World War II and um, David is kind enough to share a little bit more about his life. Yeah, well, um, as I was starting to say, Michael, those fellas, he was at school in Brisbane when World War II broke out and uh, a lot of fellas from Churchy enrolled, especially in the Air Force. Uh, Dad actually wanted to be a bomber pilot like my great uncle, um, but the test was how do you become a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot after initial training? I like this story. Yeah, <laughs> and the story is, is how they test you, is that they put you into a boxing ring at the age of 18 uh, with these hardened commandos who've just spent four years in Egypt. And But little did they know that my father was a heavyweight boxing champion at Churchy <laughs> and is professionally coached. Uh, so he knocked out the commando in the first round. And so the assessors, directing staff, just went tick, fighter pilot. Yeah. Not whether you're good at maths or physics or good flies, just that if you had that ticker. You had so, that aggression, I guess. <coughs> yeah, I guess mm. so. Um, so Dad actually topped his course as a fighter pilot. He was a top gun. Yep. Both, you know, with the intelligent, the um, the academic part and the flying bit. So uh, he ended up in Borneo in the tail end of the war, Labuan and Moratai Island, and uh, was uh, with 77 Squadron, which then w- was going on to the um, British occupation of Japan. So Dad was on his way to that, but his father, my grandfather, had been made a full colonel in the British Control Commission of Germany right at the fall of when Germany fell in August 45. So he went over at very short notice to then not as a, a military officer, but as a, I guess, a well, as a military officer for the Control Commission to rehabilitate the agriculture of Germany because he was an agricultural scientist by training. So Grandad didn't get back till 1948. So Dad's journey was, instead of going back to uni, he got back to Australia in February 1946. Uh, he went down to have a holiday with his great-uncle on the big banana farm because Arthur Freeman was a big show then. He had the biggest banana farm in Australia and was obviously doing nicely. Uh, and Dad had been down there as a kid on holiday, so 
his old great uncle said, Billy, why don't I um, give you some land, 50 acres for a start. If you make a quid, well, you can pay me. And then when Grandad got back from Germany, mm. they got another 100. So they amalgamated the two properties, 150 acres, and we called it Kyanga after our original uh, property on the south coast of New South Wales from 1856 to Kyanga Estate, which is right next to Naruma. So that's where Dad was all his life. But mm. um, his, uh, his whole life, his whole creed, as I said at the eulogy, was duty and service above self. And so for all his married life with my mother, they were involved in community events and Dad was president of Lions in Palm Beach in 1965 where he built the Sulk Oval. He was instrumental in that. Um, did many great things for Lions and kidney research, you name it. He got an MBE from the Queen in 1986 for his good work. Uh, he refused it when the governor rang, when his chief of staff rang up. He said, I'm not worthy of it, typical of my father. <laughs> then it had to take the governor, Sir James Ramsey, to ring my father personally to... Um, uh, invite him to accept this award. Uh, so that was very touching. Um, and then for the twilight of Dad's years, he, he was still at the farm. I at least had nine years after I got out of the army and I could uh, be there with him. Mm-hmm. And the last 18 months I nursed him because I was going to put him in a nursing home after he broke his pelvis. Uh, but at least for the twilight of his of his life, he still turned up to Cromenaris all Anzac days, gave riveting speeches. I still gave him his uh, cup of tea and bed and biscuit every morning. And so the, the last part was, you know, on the downhill run. But um, he was at peace, you know, and uh, he's left a legacy, which he's given me the blueprint how to live my life. And the nice thing is my sons, who also went to churchy, they had a very strong connection with their grandfather. And when they got up and spoke at the funeral, they, they echoed the sentiments that basically our grandfather's given us a blueprint on how to live our, a good life. So Fantastic. If that's a if that's a legacy you can leave, mate. Then, as I said at my son's first bapti- uh, the baptism of my first son, if I said if I can be half the man my father is, I'll be indeed be a great man. So I'm getting about I'm about at forty nine percent. I'm getting there. <laughs> mm. Love it, love it. Well, thank you, yeah, for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And um, you know, I'm kind of wondering as you're saying that, to what extent has the recent passing of your father potentially um, spurred you on to actually? cracking and, and coming and doing this this program as a participant? Uh, Michael, I think it's it's the catalyst. I think mm. Ga- Gary, I ran Gary, even though he's on sabbatical, I wanted him to be involved in the funeral and the homily and because yep. and the memorial service, as you can imagine, was big, was 500 people and I had to have 12 speakers. And uh, I knew it was going to be a big show, but I needed that confidence of Gary there with me by my side. I didn't choke up and uh, he had met Dad 31, 32 years ago and, of course, he'd run you know, six or seven of those veterans' retreats. So he'd always take time to yep. sit down with Dad and Dad would impart his wisdom. So I think Gary realised I was heading towards the end of a cliff and he said to me before the funeral, he said, mate, as soon as this funeral's over, you need to take a rest. He said, I'm booking you. He didn't, he didn't ask. He said, <laughs> I, he said, I am booking you into a veterans' retreat at Rainbow Bay. And he said, can you come? And I looked at him. I said, you bet, I need it. He said, good, well, we'll see you soon, mate. So I'm here, yep. it's wonderful. I mean, Dr John's a genius, but it's the uh, it's a collegiate approach of all the other veterans here. We're all learning from each other. There's so much genuine love and support. Um, the trouble is, as one of the speakers said this morning, the trouble, all of us that go in the military always serve and we serve everyone else but our, ourselves. Mm. And I did that for 28 years in the Army and then I got out and I thought I'd retire and just, you know, go surfing. Well... I'm working twice as hard as I was in the army, and I don't have holidays. <laughs> so uh, you need someone objective and outside your circle to pull a handbrake on you. Say, no, mate, time, time is right. 
He's coming down to St George's. Come yep. and do five days. Bring your surfboard. Uh, we're going to teach you how to relax. So we're on the journey. There you are. But I've started, mate. Fantastic. And what's been some of the, I guess, the specific key takeaways so far? I mean, we've still got another couple of days to go. And we usually do these sort of interviews at the end of the program. But mm. still, there's been quite a few. There's been a lot of... Um, Great sessions and, and, and circle time and shares and different things going on. If there was one or two key things so far that jump out of you, what would they be? Well, I look, I think doing that um, that circle of life, as I said to Dr. John this morning, <coughs> and at the time I said, that, that's a real truth serum because you just don't know how low you are. And, mm. you know, I basically failed every one of those scores. And all my life, because I was a keen nipper and lifesaver and surfer, you know, surfing was my go-to and salvation and my drug. Um, and when you deny yourself something that gives you great pleasure, you're not balanced. And uh, all work and no, no play makes Jack a dull boy. Well, uh, I become a dull boy not through design but just through the pressures of having to run a farm and looking after two-aged parents. Dull boy. I don't know. I thought a, bit, a fair bit of charisma today with the ABC interviews and on, on the news last night, but okay. Everything's relative. Everything's yep. relative. Yep. Yeah, I look, um, you can put on a good show when the media's there. <laughs> <have to, but laughs> yeah, well, that, that's... Let's put a peg in that for later. That's yeah. a very interesting point. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. But um, no, look, this this is probably because all of us, when we leave the military, we don't have a proper uh, resettlement plan. You just full time army officer one day, next day you're picking up your final bit of paper at Inogra, mm. and the transition piece is really deficient. I, I think I've got to call it out, even though I got no criticism against DVA. There's no mentor or welfare officer to guide you through as you leave the military because the military sort of defines you and, uh, you know, and I had some important jobs and I felt important and received and, you know, worked with General Cosgrove and other senior officers and um, hosted prime ministers and governors general and whatever. So you enjoyed, um, I enjoyed uh, an important part in three different missions in Timor, Iraq and Afghanistan but you feel a bit lost when you're discharged um, and there's not that external help. You know, you, you're a bit rudderless. And if you've got a mental injury like I had, most of the vets have, have here, you you tend to become a uh, hermit and you don't want to socialise and um, it's not healthy. You have to keep that engagement and that tribe which Dr John talks about. Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty of that because I just, you know, threw myself into the farm and I didn't make enough time for my... Um, my old mates from uni who, you know, stood by me thick and thin. In fact, they were the three guys who spoke at my father's funeral. Mm. They're the godfathers of my two boys. So I now really, and, you know, one of them I used to row with, and the, we were all good, quite good rowers at uni, and uh, he said, mate, I'm getting you back in the boat. You're coming back up and you're getting in that big eight and we're rowing again. So I said, all right, well, you can drag me up by Christmas and I'll be in the front seat of the boat and I'll be rowing again. So that camaraderie they all enjoy. They're all in their 60s like me. Those guys meet once a week and they go rowing on the Brisbane River. There's like a gun team, a medium team and the gentleman's team, but it's all about the camaraderie. And, um, you know, that I, I see that's been missing in my life. It's been unbalanced. And Pauline, who is here, as you saw for a couple of days, she obviously loves me but knows that I'm my life is not in balance and she's tolerant because I was nursing my father. But th- this is the wake-up call. Mm. Um, and as Father Gary says, mate, if you don't look after yourself, well... There'll be no one to run the farm. You can't fall over. We need you. You've got to be healthy to yep. develop this veterans' organic garden, which I see as an adjunct to veterans' care, mm. where veterans can just come up any day of the week, uh, come and get their hands in the red soil with me, sit and just have the camaraderie and fellowship, look down the valley to the ocean, hear the birds, smell the breeze. It's beautiful. And I think anybody who's been to our farm just 
realises a good energy there. Um, and it's spawned five generations of veterans. So, you know, it's like sacred soil, if I can call it that. And um, it doesn't matter who comes to the farm, you don't have to be a veteran, but it's just a special, unique piece of geology on the top of Tomwin Mountain that's very calming. Mm. No, you hit on a point there. I think it's been one of the key sort of themes of the last couple of days, which is, um, you know, having those peer groups. You know, and, and as we, you know, as Dr. John was saying, it's like, once you get out of that environment, your work environment, whatever it is you're doing day to day and you retire, you can go go from four to five peer groups to one yeah. or sometimes none. And that's really concerning. So I think it's awesome that you've gotten back out there and sort of reignited, you know, the old Chinese network and, and got back out there. That's that's mm. fantastic. That's what we all need to do mm, at different right. stages. So yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so for you, what what is it that you think the veterans take away from Freeman's Farms most? Because there's going to be lots of things, but what do you think the main thing is? Well, look, Father Gary asked me to be very honest when they come up there, and I do a bit of humour, you know, I do the circle stuff for a start and make jokes on warrant officers because we all <laughs> love that. Um, but, you know, that's just to set the banter, and I ask each of them what's their names and what they do because, you know, they're just 20 people just dropping in on me cold and I like to know a bit about their backgrounds because yep. obviously they know who I am because Gary's told them in the bus, you know, where we're sure. going and who I am. Yep. Um, the takeaways... The, the bit I think, and I've never read the after-action reviews, but I think my honesty is to say, look, okay, I was a lieutenant colonel, but I was broken. I have come back and farming is my salvation because I'm with nature and I've got my hands in the soil. But I also know all of us have suffered because of the exposure to chemicals or trauma or all the, all the drugs they gave us. I mean, you know, I'm talking about anthrax and all the needles we got in us. You know, it's affected our gut health and therefore directly related uh, our mental health. So I realise sort of in a uneducated way that the holistic health approach which Gary and Michael are trying to do is if we can stop eating the bad food and the bad habits and start growing nutrient-dense organic fruit and vegetables, which as you've heard me rave on some of my farm tours are up to 10 times more nutrient-dense than what you buy in the supermarket, mm. we've got to start stop using Kmart oil in the engine and put Rolls-Royce oil in the engine, Yep, which reboots this thing called our engine, which is our stomach and our gut. Mm -hmm. And in turn, by improving that gut health, which is directly related to our brain, we improve our mental health. It's a huge aspect of it and it's missed. Yeah, it is, mate. And yeah. all of society is doing this because people are going in, including the vegans who I sort of love in a weird way. Um, <laughs> that's humour, of course. Um, they go into the supermarket and just buy vegetables. But then when they go to my sister's surgery, they all turn up with malnutrition because the fruit and vegetables they're buying has got no nutrition. Right. So it's wonderful to eat fruit and veg, but you've got to eat quality, nutrient-dense fruit and veg. Interesting. And if you and also I tell them my story at the farm, which you might remember, 31 years ago I was on, on a number of army mountain climbing expeditions, Everest and then South America and then Kilimanjaro. And when I got back from, I walked, I was the first idiot to walk from the Indian Ocean to the summit of Kilimanjaro with another army mate of mine. And um, that was all okay, but I ended up, when I got home, I had quite a uh, malignant, um, quick-growing tumour. And so I had to have, you know, pretty urgent surgery at Royal Prince Alfred. And all I remember the nutritionist saying to me, uh, well, the, my oncologist said, mate, you're going to have to have 12 months of intensive chemo, but go home to the farm and recover for a few weeks and then come back and see me and we'll start you on the program. So before I jumped on the plane to come back to the farm, I went and saw the leading nutritionist in the hospital. And I, my life was in a blur because, you know, I'd just been running marathons and climbing mountains. And I thought I was bulletproof at mm -hmm. 31 and then I have a life-threatening disease going, holy hell, I am mortal. She, all I remember saying was broccoli and carrots. So we happened to grow organic broccoli and carrots. And so for the next four weeks, all I ate 
was broccoli and carrots and my skin when I got back to Sydney because I was sitting out there listening to Bob Dylan in the March sun, I looked like Donald Trump, I was orange. <laughs> but he said, I felt really good and he said, gee, you look good, mate. He said, look, uh, we've got you booked in tomorrow for chemo but let's just run some blood tests on you because I, you, you don't look sick at all. And prior to the surgery, my cancer levels were 72, which is outrageously high. They should be less than four. He came back. He said, go and have a coffee and I'll get the blood test and come back and see me the Sarbo. And he said, mate, I don't believe it. You, your cancer markers are down to two. He said, what did you do? I said, oh, I just listened to what the nutritionist said. I just went home and had characters five times a day. He said, mate, you've beaten it. Your, your, your immune system is rebooted. Just writing notes. <laughs> He said, you're immu- you rebooted your immune system, which has beaten this tumour. He said, what we've got to do, though, we've got to check you every month for the first year and then two and three months. And, um, and for five years, I was on what's called cancer watch and I wasn't allowed to go back into operational billets because you can't deploy if you've got that. But um, by the fifth year, mate, I was back, you know, uh, climbing mountains, playing rugby, um, running half marathons and life continued. Wow. So I guess in that very early ages of 31 thinking you're bulletproof and you're, you know, roaming the world, climbing mountains and all that, uh, as a young army officer, as you know, you sort of, the world is at your feet and, you know, you think you're, I don't know, you think you can conquer everything, I guess. But um, I just took it in my step and I didn't, I had very positive, um, I I didn't get freaked out by the cancer thing at all. I didn't go into depression or anything. I said, no, bugger, this is just a disease. I'll I'll, I'll knock this on the head. And what age were you when you first got diagnosed? 31. That was right then. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so that led me into this whole world of organic fruit and vegetables and our farmers always produce very high quality fruit and vegetables but my father was not an organic farmer but he did not use chemicals. We were lazy farmers as I like to call ourselves but uh, I said when I get out of the army if I'm going to, because I, I was halfway through a PhD in international law and a couple of universities were sort of keen to take me on as a bit of a part-time academic but I said no, nah, my true passion is the farm and uh, I'm going to live here till the day I die, and I want to hand on this farm in better shape than I found it. And that's the legacy I want on my tombstone, Mm. because that farm, if I cultivated every square inch of it, uh, I could feed 120,000 people. So we only need five farms like that on the Gold Coast to feed the whole of the Gold Coast. Wow. So that's how productive Mm. you can make your land. And it's quality food too. Quality food. So... A quick, te- uh, a quick um, scientific point, which you might remember from the farm tours, hydroponic vegetables, which is a modern paradigm or convention of how stuff's growing because they can grow so much on a small area, 12 crops of lettuce a year in a, in a greenhouse. Mm. They look good in the cellophane packet there on the supermarket shelf. It has a bricks or a nutrient reading of 1.5, that, uh, that hydroponically grown lettuce. It'll last three days in your fridge before it falls apart and you've got to throw it out versus organic lettuce or organic leafy greens like I grow and other good organic farmers, my lettuce measure 20 on the bricks versus 1.5. So we're talking 12 times more nutrient dense. Mm. The lettuce will last three weeks in your fridge, not three days. So the science is indisputable between non, you know, chemically grown fruit and vegetables versus organically grown fruit and vegetables on good, healthy, organic soils, rich in mineral and rich in biology. So that's my passion, mm-hmm. is sustainability, quality fruit and vegetables, teaching people those skills to have their own veggie garden in the backyard so they can do the same as I am but on a smaller scale. Yep. Another endeavour I'm doing because I'm on the board of the Crum and RSL is that we're going to use a lot of the organic waste from that big restaurant there 
and mm. bring that up. Mm-hmm. I've got three different compost stations now at the farm and the ideal is that veterans would then make compost from the scraps from a, a, a veterans club, namely an RSL, mm. and then uh, we turn that beautiful compost into the soil, enriching our soil, which is a very sustainable farming practice. So we call it, the new modern term for that is regenerative agriculture. Mm. Fantastic. Well... Yeah, if anyone listening to this hasn't actually been up there, whether you haven't done a TA or just haven't been in that area, definitely suggest dropping by, you know, um, at any time. You can just drop in for a coffee. Just the view alone is worth it, right? You know, I, well, I think it is. I, I like to describe it as above average. <laughs> you can grab a, a, a couple of organic avocados while you're there at the very least. But um, you've hit on a couple of things there that I think are, are worth sort of noting. We'll, we'll sort of come back to the, the mental health aspect and the, the veteran sort of space as well. Um. You mentioned uh, yeah, anyone can put on a show for the television. I think that's – and you do. You, you're very naturally charismatic in front of the camera. But that, what's interesting about that, that that comment, and I think this is common, is that we can hide behind a facade. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. I mean, they're, they're my words. Use your words, of course. But that's – let's unpack that a bit. Yeah, look, I, I think probably when you're an army officer or a soldier is that, you know, to always put on that brave face. Yep. I think a lot of us have probably struggled. We didn't even realise, you know, as yep. we did multiple tours. Uh, but yeah, the whole philosophy is just harden up and do your job. Mm. And um, I think that is the ethos of the army and if there's any sign of weakness, you know, amongst your peers, because it's a very cutthroat, you know, alpha male, dysfunctional organisation, <laughs> if I can call it out as it is. I would 100% agree with that. Uh there's not a lot of compassion or real soul, I think, in our careers, and it was very competitive. I mean, the officer corps especially, and we all wanted to be promoted. And you know, it's a pretty ruthless, pretty ruthless career. It's it's a, it's a tough gig being, um, mm. and then add deployments on top of that. And, and and if you don't behave like that to some extent yourself, then you'll probably just get left at, left behind. So yeah. you're stuck in this rock and a hard place scenario. You are, yeah. Like so, nice guys like me who weren't competitive or prepared to step over. You know, other people passed you by who weren't as talented, or so you thought, or objectively. But mm. um, it hardens you up, and uh, I think um, probably we, especially if you're working for artillery commanders, you all have to put on a tough face because they're just merciless. Um, I think we learned to put... And also I was trained as a lawyer, so as an advocate and a barrister, I'd have to get up and perform in court. Yep. So there's a certain amount of theatre and we're acting in um, that profession. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, I guess because my father was a an, you know, naturally good public speaker, I inherited a bit of that. So if I've got to get up in front of an audience, I can, I can tell a story. Mm. I, you know, I've taught in universities on and off for 25, 30 years. So, you know, to get the arousal, the attention of the students, you just, a bit like Dr John, you break it up with a bit of humour and um, when you've got them listening, then you can tell them the real stuff, you know. Yeah, you, you, yeah. We, you weave humour into your story because I think if you've got a presenter that connects with you emotionally or, you know, from a point of view, then people are inclined to listen to you. If you're just a, a dull PowerPoint guy, well, they're going to be asleep in 20 minutes and you lost them, so. That's right. Um, your, con- I, your content might be bang on. Yeah. People aren't listening. Yeah. yeah, you got it. Yeah, so um, I think all of us in the army have to put on a alpha male persona yeah. just to appear in front of our commanders or our peers that we're good, but underneath a lot of us are not doing that well. I wonder if that's worse for officers because it's even more the case. You know, I was, a, I was an OR. I sort of left as a corporal qualified sergeant, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in, in core sort of a corporal was really a private, so never really... Had any sort of anything resembling high level command, that's for sure. But I'm wondering if 
because of that necessity you put on a brave face is there even more as a commander and officer because you're leading the troops, you can't show weakness, you've got to do all this, is that, that stoicism and that kind of um, unwillingness to potentially face facts is worse in officers than it might be in ORs. Look, that's a really good question, Michael. I know when I did my parachute course, I was, uh, there was myself and just one other captain and there's like 64 troops, you know, you're in your herc. And even though I wasn't the best paratrooper or the bravest or the biggest or the strongest, they put me at the front of the plane <laughs> to jump out <laughs> because the officers have to lead the men out. And I was just a legal officer, but I said, oh, no, Captain Freeman, you're at the front, mate. You're leading the boys out. So even though I was as nervous as hell, I realised that I had to step up and do it. Um, so I think, I think maybe there is more pressure and expectation and responsibility uh, on officers and... We're just fragile like the soldiers. We, we're no stronger mentally or physically, but we have to try and represent to them that we are in control and we know what we're doing. But you mm. know, so yeah, I think there is. Um, and I mean that one of my colleagues, I can't remember the major general, whatever his name was, um, come to me in a minute. He 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 had a big breakdown when he got back from Iraq, and he was honest and brave enough to write a book. Uh, and I got other mates who are full colonels who, you know, they've had breakdowns. So yeah. just because you're an officer doesn't mean you're immune to mental health problems. Uh, we suffer just as much as the troops. And um, but you know, uh, there's always that joke. Oh yeah, officers. You know, um, what did the NCO say? Don't call me, sir. I work for a living. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, look, e- every rank in the army has its has its uh, challenges and expectations, yeah. Oh, yeah. and yeah. it's a tough gig for all of us, mate. It is. It is, and I think. Uh, just as you're talking there, I kind of was reflecting on my own career, and I think, you know, there'd be a couple of key reasons I think why um, you know people at your level would probably have to put that face on uh, even more so. One is uh, younger thrusting officers who are under your command, who you can't show weakness to, mm. right? Because they want to get your position, they want to do whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. fresh out of ad for whatever. Yeah, yeah. But also the soldiers, right? Because they they can be gobby, they can be mm. you know little shits and and cheeky and whatever, and you've Got to be able to control all of that. Yeah, um, yeah so that's a rule. I mean, as you said, it's tough at every level, and every, I think everyone brings a different level of resilience from their lives up until that point when they join the army. That might be high, it might be low. Mm. Um, so it's always going to be different. You could have a, a digger who's number two in the gun with minimal responsibilities, but he's come from a broken home, he's done this or her, yeah. uh, and might have not the greatest resilience. He might be struggling just as much as the LT colonel. So everything is relative, but I'm just, yeah, I think this is an interesting thing i think it's worth exploring uh, mm. just in keeping back of houses that yeah i'm wondering if there's l- less officers coming forward because they don't feel like they can maybe that's changing now because mm. friends like you like you just mentioned but yeah it's concerning no, it's 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 a question worth examining mm. Might be one dr john and padre gary have to look at and yep yep because there's just as many broken officers as there are soldiers uh, yeah why don't they come forward and do this stuff and maybe it's that pride i was an officer yeah. i can't show this weakness it could be, mate. I, I don't know, uh, but we're human, like the you know the troops. Exactly and, right. Um, we're all affected by war and deployments. You can't avoid it. And I think the other aspect to that is not only just uh, when they get out of the defence, but if they decide to stay yeah. and they don't address this sort of stuff, yeah. they're bringing everything that they had throughout their life up to that point. Yeah. Then there's all the you know the neuroticism, and the stress, and the accumulated anxiety from their service life. Yeah. If they decide to stay in, they've now just gone to a, another higher rank yeah. and are in charge and responsible for more people and higher levels of complexity in operations but yeah. haven't addressed those issues. That now affects everyone else. So it, it's not just 
their own mental health in some ways. It can be the mental health of the people underneath them because they just become just become a tyrant potentially. <laughs> you know, no, if, you're if, right. it's, if it's not addressed, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you're yeah. absolutely right, yeah. mate. Yeah, um, but fantastic. David, look, um, we can probably wrap up fairly soon. Thank you so much for, for your assistance. Is there anything else you wanted to, to throw out there, whether I've, I've missed a key topic about the farm or your, your sort of decision to come here today? Feel free to um, throw it out if there's something I've missed. No, mate, look, I, Michael, I, I mean, I, I have a Christian faith and that's where my mm. connection with Padre Gary started 31, 32 years ago. But mm. what I said to Nicole Dyer on ABC Radio is that, um, yesterday and then today is that when we leave the military, uh, there's no welfare officer, and it doesn't matter whether you're a digger or a lieutenant colonel, you go into a nogger, they just give you a bit of paper and say, thanks for your service. You know, you go, what? I just did 28 years. Isn't is, is there <laughs> any parade for me? Well, you know. And uh, even a brigadier mate of mine, Don Roach, said, mate, don't expect anything grand when you go to a nogger. There's not going to be any farewells or bans. It's just mm-hmm. a handshake. Here's your envelope and off you go. And, oh, by the way, here are all your medical problems. You need to go and see all these doctors. Um so the end of one's career can be a bit deflating because it defines us and the transition piece which I think has been lacking when I got out nine, ten years ago because it was very little and, you know, and I, I was okay. I mean, there's a lot of blokes far worse than me. Mm. I think that's the bit DVA and the government and welfare organisations really has to, as um, Father Gary said to Angus Campbell, the CDF, um, before we leave the military we must set up a much better transition piece. Mm. For people who are leaving, I think there's got to be both a, a holistic approach how we discharge and there's got to be like specialists, maybe psychs in a discharge cell and it's got to be a gradual thing as we uh, cut the umbilical cord and make sure that all your medical stuff's done before you get discharged and you mm. don't feel like a loner and left out because that's where the mental health issues... I mean, we, we're okay while we're in even though we're suffering because yep. we've got our comrades around us and we're in the system. Yep. Some security. But, when, but when you're cut adrift, uh, that's where you can spiral out of control and... That's where I see Veterans Care Australia doing such a great job. They have stepped into that breach that DVA have not done. Not critical of DVA, it's just that it's not set up yep. or funded for that, for that holistic health approach. And I think the more Gary can do on this and Michael and you know now Nicole Dyer on ABC Radio and they've been in front of the, the, um, the Royal Commission... Mm. I think government, and as Gary said to Nicole Dyer on the radio there, uh, in the last 10 years, 1,200 veterans have committed suicide. That's ten times more than we lost in operations. Staggering. And for a modern, civilised, compassionate society like Australia, we shouldn't have that. And we need to step up. We need the governments yeah. need to lift their game. They need to start caring for these people who put their line their life on the line yeah. to protect our democracy. And I'm gonna work till the day I die on to help other veterans. Amazing. Well, David, look, thank you so much for everything you're contributing here. This doesn't have to be our last chat either. We'll, we'll be bringing this stuff down every, every time and um, we might even have a uh, – just had a great idea to do, a, do a, uh, an interview at the atop your mountainside with a view in the background. How does that sound? Sounds wonderful, Michael. <laughs> Good on you, mate. David, thanks so much for your time, mate. I uh, really appreciate it. I know anyone listening to this has got a lot out of it and you never know who's listening and what aspects they've taken out of it. So thanks so much again and uh, let's enjoy the rest of the program. Good on you, mate. Bless you. Easy. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And if you do have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do, of course, encourage you to share this podcast out to anyone who you feel may benefit from it. Thank you so much, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next podcast. Bye for now.